In this season of One Year, we're focusing on 1942, telling stories about the home front during the most tumultuous year in U.S. history. The best way to understand what it was like in America 80 years ago is to talk to someone who actually lived through 1942. So we sent our producer Sophie Summergrad to interview a very special guest. Baba, can you tell me your name and how you're related to me? My name is Mildred Summergrad, and you are my granddaughter, Sophie. My grandmother, Millie, is 98 years old. I call her Baba. Her family immigrated to the U.S. from Ukraine in the early 1920s, a few years before she was born, and they settled in New York City. Baba grew up in a relatively new and sort of unique housing development in the Bronx. Somebody had built something called the Coops, the Workers' Cooperative Colony. It was three separate buildings, all connected to each other. Beautiful buildings with beautiful grounds. The Coops were thought of as a kind of progressive utopia. They had everything you could imagine, right at your doorstep. We had a library. We had a daycare center, food shopping right in the building. There was a grocery store and a, and a butcher and a fruit market. There was also a lot of activity. There was a chorus that people could sing in. And the most important thing is we had a Jewish shula. Shula just means school in Yiddish. The one at the Coops was cultural, not religious. It was a place where kids in the neighborhood could go and learn Yiddish on the weekends. And my grandmother loved it. She can still remember all of her teachers' names. Bitzalel Friedman, Dvoira Tarant, Maya Gelman, who happened to be related in some way to us because his son married Lola, my cousin. The shula was when she was 15, there was one person at the shula who really stood out to her, another student in the class. His name was Leo. He had a shock of black hair, and all the girls were in love with him, and all the girls liked him, and I was very attracted to him right away. He was very handsome, very good-looking, very sexy. Baba kept telling me how sexy Leo was, to my great embarrassment. Leo is my grandfather. I call him Zadie. Zadie, definitely. A sex symbol. <laughs> I really mean it. Very sexy. Very, very sexy. He liked her too, it turned out. They would flirt constantly in class. I had long curls, and we had these desks that had inkwells in them, and he would sit behind me and he would dip my curls into the ink. This wasn't just a school thing. Baba and Zadie would flirt outside of class, too. During that time, I had chickenpox, and we lived in this apartment, which was on the ground floor, and my mother tied my hands behind my back, I shouldn't scratch. I stood in the window, and this handsome young man in this white sweater stood outside and threw me kisses. Did you guys ever go on a first date? I can't say that we went on any date. I don't think such a thing even existed for us. We went to the park. That's where we went. And we would sit outside near the park very late. And my father would come out to call me to come home, to bring me home. They stayed together when they graduated high school, in 1941 and 1942. So they were still a couple as America went to war. We interrupt our program at this point to bring you a special bulletin. The Senate 
has unanimously passed the war resolution. I'll repeat that once again. The Senate unanimously has just passed the war resolution. In 1942, Baba and Zadie were both in college in New York City and still living at home with their parents. Their experience of the beginning of the war was pretty similar to other Americans. Rationing, worried about the news overseas, and feeling uncertain about the future. She was 18, and he was 19, a year too young to be drafted. But then, in November 1942, that changed. Swift action by Congress to lower the draft age to 18. President Roosevelt signed a bill that made more than a million teenagers eligible to be called up. The more of the younger troops that we have in the field, the sooner the war will be won. Zadie was now required to register, but he wouldn't necessarily have to go to war right away. The Army had introduced a special program for students called the Enlisted Reserve Corps. They said if you're in the Enlisted Reserve, you won't leave college. So he joined the Enlisted Reserve. Zadie signed up on December 14, 1942. It was supposed to at least buy them some time. But the nation was at war. Everything that seemed solid could fall apart in an instant. The only thing that Baba and Zadie felt absolutely certain about was each other. The very next week, they made a sudden decision about their future. We decided at the beginning of Christmas week that we want to be married. I mean, we wanted to be married at the end of the week. Nobody said you'd wait two weeks or wait three weeks. Nobody said anything. Not his parents, not mine. We really wanted to be married. There was nothing practical in what we decided to do. We were both in school. We had no money. And maybe we was naive enough to think that it would just work out and everything was going to be okay. Millie and Leo weren't the only ones who wanted to exchange vows. In 1942, marriage was a national obsession. In this week's episode, you'll hear about a small town in Arizona that became the wedding capital of the United States. You'll hear about the scolds, who warned that wartime marriages would never work. And you'll hear what happened to Millie and Leo, who were very much in love and very unprepared for what would come next. This is one year, 1942, the year everyone got married. In the days after the United States joined World War II, every American had a lot to think about. Whether the country would survive, whether they'd be safe, and whether they should grab a hold of someone before it might be too late. There were a lot of hasty marriages that came about as a reaction to the beginning of the war and the fact that a lot of young men were being sent away. Emily Yellen is the author of Our Mother's War. So, you know, an 18-year-old who had a girlfriend might marry her because who knows what's going to happen next. Was romance any part of it? Define romance. <laughs> In 1942, the definitions of romance and courtship and love were all in flux 
One young woman wrote a letter to the magazine Good Housekeeping, saying she wasn't sure how to feel. She was 19, and her boyfriend had just gotten drafted. Under those circumstances, a promise to love and to cherish until death do us part was a weighty thing. There was a chance he could get seriously hurt or might never come back home. And she said, Perhaps my reasoning is perverse, but it seems to me that the world's chaos and uncertainty are reasons for marriage, not for postponement. On one level, it was very romantic. On another level, it was almost something that you could just sort of, well, we might as well. That couple did get married on New Year's Day, 1942. A whole lot more Americans made the same decision. After Pearl Harbor, requests for marriage licenses doubled in Minneapolis, Philadelphia, and Fort Wayne, Indiana. And the marches down the aisle kept on coming, all through December, when Millie and Leo got engaged. Add them all up, and there were more weddings in the United States in 1942 than had ever been recorded in a single calendar year. 1.8 million weddings, and that was up 83% from 10 years before. Two-thirds of the brides were marrying men who were newly enlisted in the military. There's a great photo spread in Life magazine of a wedding at Fort Bliss in El Paso, Texas. It's a mass ceremony in a gymnasium, with seven brides and grooms standing underneath cascading streamers. My favorite detail is that there were actually supposed to be ten couples, but three of them got impatient and decided to elope. Weddings in 1942 were typically rush jobs, often planned for a soldier's brief furlough, if they were even planned at all. You'd go, you'd get married, and you'd be gone. Your family wasn't there. It was just the couple and the person performing the wedding and maybe a witness or two that might have been paid. The rules of matrimony were changing on the fly, getting rewritten for a new era of American austerity. The New York Times reported that because of the sugar shortage, the frosting on wedding cakes had become less ornate. So a lot of people missed out on a fancy wedding, but they didn't miss out on the opportunity to marry somebody. Millie and Leo's wedding definitely wasn't fancy, but they did choose what felt like a glamorous date. Oh, we we said, we'll get married on New Year's Eve. They had only one week to prepare for the ceremony. Leo's mother was a seamstress, and she got right to work. His mother made me a a black dress with a beige inset. It seems to me it should have been white or something, but this is what she made. I really don't know. Millie didn't get to choose her dress, but she did pick out something special of her own. I had a job at a place called the Russian Art Shop on Fifth Avenue. And there, I saw an old ring. And I don't know how much it cost, probably $10 or $5 or something. And that was the ring. On New Year's Eve, 1942, Leo and Millie went to a rabbi's apartment. They were joined there by both sets of parents, Millie's sister and three friends. Those were the people that were there, nobody else. It was just a small room. I don't even remember what the ceremony was or anything. It was very perfunctory. It was, it was like a big nothing. 
I mean, the whole wedding took like five minutes. So. <laughs> Millie and Leo's Big Nothing was quintessential 1942, a momentous personal occasion conducted with zero fanfare. It was a scene that got repeated over and over, every day, all across the country. But there was one little town out west, in the middle of the desert, that hosted more ceremonies than pretty much any place in America. There was nothing more commonplace in 1942 than a quickie wedding. And if you wanted to get married fast, one place did it better than anywhere else. In 1942, Yuma, Arizona, population 5,300, hosted more than 22,000 wedding ceremonies. We've seen it all with all these thousands of weddings. People coming in and out, I had all kinds of characters coming through there. These two men know more about the Yuma wedding business than anyone else. They grew up there in the 1930s and 40s, and they're both still living in town more than 80 years later. Hi, my name is William Lutz. They call me Billy now. And uh, my brother Bob is here with me. Go ahead, Bob. Yeah, I'm Bob Lutz. I'm the brother. I've always lived in a wedding chapel, three different wedding chapels. I've lived in one now. And by the way, we, we even live right next door to each other, too. Have you guys always been close? No, no we, we fight like hell. In our interview, Billy and Bob got along great for the first couple minutes. Then I asked them to tell me a little bit about Yuma. It's right on the border of Arizona-California border and, and close to Mexico. It's 180 uh, miles uh, north of, uh, of San Diego. No, it's, it's not north. It's, uh, let, me, let me do it. Yeah. We're right between Phoenix and San Diego. We're on the southern tip of Arizona. Bob Lutz is the older brother. He was born in 1935, two years before Billy. I was born in 1937, and we were both born at a house, too. There was a hospital, but we were born in, in our home. On First Street, first in Magnolia. Their mother, Georgia, was a homemaker. Their father, R.H. Lutz, owned small businesses in Yuma. A lot of them. He had a restaurant down on little main, two blocks of Main Street. It was called the Green Spot, the uh, restaurant was. And, uh, Okay. Taxi cab company and an arcade. And, uh, and a bowling alley. And that, it feels like I should just name random businesses and see if he had it. Well, he had a drive-in liquor store later on. It was uh, popular. In 1940, when Bob and Billy were around five and three years old, their father found yet another line of work. He got elected Justice of the Peace. That made him one of the go-to officiants for civil ceremonies in town, the marrying judge of Yuma, Arizona. That's how we got started into the wedding business. It was a very lucrative uh, business if you were the justice of the peace. And uh, he was justice of the peace for 10 years. He presided over 60,000 weddings. Yuma had first become a wedding hotspot in the late 1920s. That's when the state of California started requiring a three-day waiting period for couples who wanted to get married. It was known as a gin marriage law, passed during Prohibition, 
and designed to protect couples from drunken bad decisions. What that law actually did was drive lovebirds from Southern California across state lines to Yuma. We had the uh, uh, movie stars come. There was like Tom Mix, Betty Davis, Charlie Chaplin, Loretta Young. Victor Mature. Yeah, I remember sitting on Joe Lewis's lap. Those celebrities helped kickstart the wedding business in Yuma. But it reached its high point in 1942. They'd come from San Diego, the uh, Navy, and they wanted to be married before they shipped overseas. And uh, we were one of the few places that could take care of them immediately. They would come here by busloads and a Greyhound, and the train always had people getting off of there. And there were, like, eventually there were like 10 or 12 wedding chapels in Yuma. You would cross the bridge. Right away you would see a wedding chapel on the right, Reverend Coleman's wedding chapel. Reverend James Coleman was the Lutz family's main competition. He was a black minister and had white and Latino colleagues at the ready in case a bride and groom didn't want to get married by a black man. Reverend Coleman offered other services as well. His chapel was actually a drive through service station. He had a, uh, a car wash business. And in the back of the house, he had a, a big ramp you would drive up your car on, and they would steam clean the bottom of it. And he was always in coveralls. He married people in coveralls, I think. The Lutz family lived within sight of Reverend Coleman's wedding car wash. Their home doubled as a chapel, too. When couples stopped by during business hours, R.H. Lutz would direct them to the courthouse to get a marriage license. Sending them away was risky. He needed a way to guarantee that they'd come back to his chapel and pay him his $10 fee. That's where seven-year-old Bob and five-year-old Billy came in. So for a long time, Bob and I, as little boys, we used to have to ride with these couples to the courthouse to accompany them to be sure they got back to us. You were like the collateral? <laughs> yeah, we were keeping the, the wolves away from them, and that, that worked good. That's how the kids helped out during the day. At night, they had a different job. My dad would put me out in the front of the wedding chapel, and uh, he put a ping-pong table out there, and I'd stay all night playing ping-pong, waiting on the watch for people driving across from the river into Yuma, and I'd be on the watch for them to run them down. <laughs> no matter the day of the week or the lateness of the hour, R.H. Lutz was always open for business. People, married people really, truly all died long. And 24 hours. Yeah. When the courthouse was closed, the county clerk lived right next door to us, and they were awakened all during the night, too. It was pretty hectic. Uh, my dad, was he ran around in his bathrobe all the time. He, he'd sleep when he could. There's an old photo of Bob and Billy's dad standing in the middle of their living room. He's wearing a suit, not a bathrobe. And he's facing a man and woman who are holding hands. It's not a private ceremony. There are a bunch more couples sitting up against the wall, waiting for their moment before the marrying judge. And there's people in uniform, Navy uniforms, and uh, they're waiting in line to get married. And Always was uniforms, all the time, of all branches. It was, that was part of the attire. You just seemed like everybody, every man had a uniform. Was anybody back then wearing wedding dresses? Rare would you see a wedding dress at, at uh, our home. About how long would one of these ceremonies be? 
Oh, 30, 30 minutes. 15, more like it. Yeah, 15. I, we, we listened to him, his ceremony. I used to be able to recite it in my sleep. Uh, you know, dearly beloved, we are gathered here in the sight of God and these witnesses to join these two. Bob and Billy heard that ceremony over and over again in 1942. But by the end of the year, the numbers had started to taper off. Gasoline rationing meant it might take an eight-week supply of fuel to drive from California to Arizona. The Yuma marriage business took another huge hit in 1943, when California repealed its three-day marriage waiting period. The final blow came a decade later. We heard it was a state campaign, actually. They lobbied for the legislators to change the law, and it was rumored that it was because of the churches. That lobbying campaign worked. In the 1950s, Arizona passed its own 48-hour waiting period and required that couples get a blood test for syphilis before getting married. Those stricter rules paved the way for another city to become America's wedding capital. Glorious days and glamorous nights with their round-the-clock activities. Yes, Las Vegas is truly America's favorite playground where recreation is unlimited. Yuma is a very different place now than it was in 1942. That small town of 5,300 is now a city of 100,000. You might go there to play golf or for the annual balloon festival. But if you want to get married, it's probably not high on your list of destinations. The Lutz brothers would like to change that. Bob and I took it over in 1962. And it's still going today. We are the only wedding chapel in Yuma that I know of. I'm... And it's a very nice service. We still perform them. Can you give me the pitch on why I should get married <laughs> at your spot? Well, I, I we've been going since 1940. And a lot of happy people have gone through here. We really do a nice job. It's, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a beautiful it's a, ceremony. It's, like I said, it's affordable, but with dignity. And, you know, it's... Uh, I, I don't like that. You don't like that? I don't like that language. I always tell Bob, but it sounds like a mortuary. <laughs> Bob and Billy have seen thousands of happy people on their wedding days. But in 1942, the days and weeks after that ceremony ended brought a whole different set of emotions. We'll be back in a minute. I want to tell you about a project from Slate that I think you'll find fascinating. In the last decade, the word fascism has started showing up in conversation, in headlines, and in political rhetoric. But what does the word really mean? A few years ago, three of my colleagues produced a special series on fascism in the 20th century. They looked at fascism in six countries, starting during the period we're covering on this season of one year. Then, they used that knowledge to examine fascism today, in America and the rest of the world. Slate's Fascism Academy is available only to Slate Plus members. Go to slate.com fascism to sign up today. Or if you're already a member, you can use that link to listen to all six episodes right now. Again, that's slate.com fascism.
just two weeks before Leo and Millie got married, he had joined up with the Enlisted Reserve Corps. That was the program that promised students they wouldn't be drafted until after they graduated from college. But in June of 1943, with the war still raging, that promise fell through. Six months after we got married, they cleared out City College, and Zadie was immediately drafted. I mean, I was like crushed, you know, and I think he was too, but he held it together. He really held it together. And I think we were probably more matter-of-fact about it than we should have been at that time. Maybe we didn't know what else to do. He went in a suit by himself to Penn Station. Nobody went with him. Nobody accompanied him. He just left in his suit. And for the first three days, they didn't give him any uniforms. They had him digging ditches in his suit. And it still to this day bothers me that he went by himself to the train to go to be in the army. And and we were all in the house, at our house. And he just went. Leo was sent to basic training in California. Millie followed him out west and stayed with an aunt and uncle. The newlyweds saw each other on weekends. But Millie eventually had to get back to school in New York. The solitude she felt living in her parents' apartment was both excruciating and expected. In 1942, millions of other women were struggling with the exact same thing. But even if they didn't have anyone to talk to, there was somewhere to look for advice. It's a book called So Your Husband's Gone to War, and it was written in 1942 by a woman named Ethel Gorham. Author Emily Yellen owns a vintage copy of that book. I asked her to read me a couple of passages. You've been going along, depending on the world. Now the world, your world, the world you and your husband have lived in together is going to depend on you. The cover of So Your Husband's Gone to War has a bunch of illustrations of a woman dressed in red. One of those pictures shows her standing on a stepladder, hammering a nail into a wall. The caption reads, Taking Over Male Chores. The book is full of practical advice for women on how to buck up and meet the challenges of life on the home front. Things like building a wardrobe in a time of rationing and fending off predatory men. But it also acknowledges the emotional realities of wartime. You're going to be lonesome. You're going to be unhappy. And many is the time you're going to be mad. You're going to learn how to wait and wait and wait. Waiting for letters. Waiting for phone calls. Waiting for leaves to come. Waiting for leaves to end. Waiting for this war to be over with so you won't have to wait anymore. Oh, I almost started crying. (laughs) For Millie, the waiting got the most intense when Leo finally shipped out. He was trained as a medic. In 1944, his unit headed for the Philippines. He was there for the invasion of the island of Leyte. And he was in what they call an amphibian tank division. That means they were the tear wave. They came with boats and cleared the way on the beach for the troops to arrive. Leo was at war. The only way that Millie could keep in touch with him was through the U.S. mail. We communicated by letter, but it took forever to come. Each day, 
She woke up not knowing whether her husband was safe or in harm's way. More than 10,000 Americans would be wounded in the Battle of Leyte. Thousands more would be killed. When a soldier lost his life overseas, that news was conveyed by a Western Union telegram. It often began, I regret to inform you. The postal system moved more slowly. So you could be getting letters from three weeks ago, but they could actually have been killed yesterday. And you know this, but you're still receiving these letters and living in that three weeks ago time. He wrote to us, he wrote to my parents, he wrote to his parents, and he didn't write to everybody all the time. I mean, I got the most letters, but if somebody else got a letter, we found out from each other. But we really didn't know anything. Even in those painful, lonely stretches, Millie never questioned her decision to marry Leo. But there were plenty of people who thought wartime couplings were a terrible idea. One of those doubters was a Columbia University sociologist. He said that many of these marriages were utterly preposterous, contracted by young people because death was whispering in their ears. Another skeptic was the rector of a New York City church. His name was Randolph Ray, and he wrote a book called Marriage is a Serious Business. What was he warning about? Like, what, what did he think the risks were? He's warning couples that you might think you're doing something very romantic, but marriage is hard, marriage takes commitment, marriage takes effort, and he, he did talk about the gulf that would happen between the couple when the man goes off to war and the woman is at home and they're having absolutely different experiences. That was one of the major pitfalls he warned about. While Leo was deployed to the Pacific, Millie kept busy with school. She also went to work. I had a number of jobs during the war. I had the job teaching in the shula. I had the job selling ladies' underwear in the gimbals, you know, the long underwear. Suddenly, in World War II, the number of married women in the workplace was greater than the number of single women in the workplace for the first time in American history. Those women worked as teachers and clerks and typists, but also as welders and electricians. Tens of thousands of women are already at work in aircraft. More are being added as fast as they apply. One survey found that just 30% of husbands fully supported their wives doing industrial jobs. But for lots of American women, that work was essential. This solves the breadwinning problem for many families whose men are at war. The government's policy is that women should get the same pay that men get for similar work. The workplace wasn't any kind of fantasy land for women. There was discrimination and abuse, but it also provided a level of independence, both outside and inside the home. I call the period of World War II for women an inadvertent revolution. By the end of the war, I think women had really stepped into roles they had never been allowed or able to step into before. When the war was over, there was no such thing as going back to normal. More than 400,000 American service members had been killed, leaving behind more than 100,000 widows. The husbands who did survive were changed men, coming back to changed women. 
That dynamic was at the center of the 1946 Oscar-winning film, The Best Years of Our Lives. You're not going out. Get that. You're going to stay right here and eat what I cook and like it. Let go of me. When we were married, babe, the justice of the peace said something about for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse. Remember? Well, this is the worse. Well, when do we get going on the better? Whenever I get wise to myself, I guess. Whenever I wake up and realize I'm not an officer and a gentleman anymore, I'm just another soda jerk out of a job. It turned out that the wartime wedding doubters kind of had it right. The record number of marriages in 1942 was followed by a record number of divorces in 1946. A story in the New York Times Magazine quoted a saddened lieutenant. He said that overseas, we goggled at our wives' pictures day and night. Now we get home and our two-by-four pinups suddenly become strange, life-sized women. I think that the hasty marriages of World War II certainly brought together some people who didn't need to get married, (laughs) who shouldn't have gotten married. I also think it brought together a lot of people who ended up making it work. People like Leo and Millie. To finish up our story, I'm going to turn it back over to producer Sophie Summergrad. Despite being in two major battles in the South Pacific, my grandfather made it through the war safely. He traveled back to the United States on a ship bound for the West Coast. They made landfall on December 30th, 1945, one day shy of his third wedding anniversary. He called home to New York as soon as he got on shore. But back then, my grandmother didn't have a telephone. He called me from San Francisco to a candy store which was three blocks from the house, and somebody ran all the way to the apartment to get me to receive this phone call that he was back in San Francisco and he was coming home. Do you remember how you felt? It was amazing. Unbelievable. When we saw him, we did meet him at the train station. He weighed 156 pounds, He was in his uniform, as handsome as could be. It was so exciting. And he looked so wonderful. My grandparents were some of the lucky ones. The love between them hadn't waned a bit. Zadie returned to school and got a degree in chemistry. Baba went to work for the city's welfare department. And they got their own place to live, in the same complex where they had first met. In the years following the war, they had two children, my father Paul and my uncle Eric. Baba and Zadie both went on to long careers in the Bronx public schools. I was born in 1991, the first of their two grandchildren. And from my intimate perspective, I can honestly say I've never seen two people more in love. It was a very strong marriage in every way. I would say that it was a lot a lifelong love affair that started at 15 and 16 and ended when it ended that day. My grandfather died in the summer of 2021. He was 98 years old. Baba and Zadie were one of 1.8 million couples that got married in the United States in 1942. Their marriage was one of the longest, lasting more than 78 years. Mr. Summergrad, do I have 
permission to record this interview. Absolutely. Ten years before he died, Zadie did an oral history interview with the Yiddish Book Center. He talked mostly about Yiddish, but he did briefly touch on his service in the Army. I enlisted in December of 1942, and I was still a sophomore in college at the time. And, of course, and he also reflected back on one key moment from his childhood. That decision to register myself in the shula was by far the most important decision I ever made in my life. Now, that sounds very strange, because obviously a lot of other things happened in my life. And I say that because I married one of my classmates. You know, people get old, they get cranky, they get annoyed with each other. It never happened to us. He would always say, how lucky could I be that I met you? And because of you, I've had this wonderful life. Next time on One Year 1942, technology is destroying the livelihoods of America's musicians. So they go on the offensive and bring the recording industry to a standstill. Why should we record these things that are going to put us out of our jobs? We're not going to play this game anymore. We want some changes. This episode of One Year was written by Sophie Summergrad and me, Josh Levine. Our senior producer is Evan Chung. This episode was produced by Sam Kim, Sophie Summergrad, Evan Chung, and me. It was edited by Evan Chung and Derek John, Slate's senior supervising producer of narrative podcasts. Our senior technical director is Merit Jacob. Holly Allen created the artwork for this season. Emily Yellen's book is Our Mother's War. You can send us feedback and ideas and memories from 1942 at slate.com. And you can call us on the One Year Hotline at 203-343-0777. We'd love to hear from you. Special thanks to Justin Willingham, Sol Worthen, Joel Anderson, Christina Cotarucci, Madeline Ducharme, Susan Matthews, Hilary Fry, Bill Carey, Katie Rayford, Ben Richmond, Caitlin Schneider, Cleo Levin, Seth Brown, Rachel Strong, and Alicia Montgomery, Slate's VP of Audio. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with more from 1942.